Happy good morning. It would be great if the weather would make a decision. Um, is it 17 out there today? I haven't been, I, I got up early this morning, left the house. Is it 17 yet? It's supposed to be, right? And there's supposed to be 24 tomorrow? Schizophrenic. Uh, look, I've got a little bit of a, of a sick sense of humor, to be honest with you. Um, and what that means is I laugh at the misfortune of others. It's just, it's just who I am. And I heard a story this week on NPR. Does anybody listen to NPR? Okay, good. No, you don't. All right, fantastic. It's like public access radio, essentially is what it is. All right, so I listened to this story, and it's, it's fantastic. And it's actually relevant to what we're going to study this morning in John chapter 4. Kevin talked about it last week, and we're just kind of looking at it from a different perspective this week. But let me share with you this story, or let me share this story with you, and, and then we'll talk about John chapter 4. There was a reality show that uh, people put together in Scotland, and here was the kind of concept, the principle of the reality show, is they put like 10 or 12 people together, and they sent them out into the middle of the bush or the forest or whatever it is, and they lived together with no interaction with the outside world for a year. So no talking to family or friends, no going to Longo's, no, no checking CNN.com, which actually might be a little bit of a relief sometimes, right? Like no Instagram, no Facebook, no nothing. And they sent a camera crew out there with them, and they worked out where they would, you know, do pickups and drop off of supplies, and they had emergency numbers and things. But even the camera crew didn't have any interaction with the outside world. Does that sound like a reality show that some of you would watch? Anybody? Would anybody watch that? Good. Not a lot of people in Scotland did either. So three months into the reality show, they canceled it. And they let the network know. And they let, you know, the sponsors know. But someone failed to let the individuals know who were in the middle of the forest. So for nine months, three months, they're actually filming this thing. Nine months, they live by themselves with no interaction in the outside world, thinking all the while that they're on a reality show. Unbeknownst to them, the reality show had been canceled. Now, because I have a sixth sense of humor, I think that's funny. Do you not think that's funny? Yeah, some of you are like, I, I love this guy, you know. Some of you are like, that is sick. And it is. It's sick. Here's the thing. When you are missing, there are times when you and I can be missing a very critical piece of information. And when that critical piece of information is disclosed to us, it would cause us to make very different life decisions. You ever notice that? Like if, 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 you're not, if you're in the dark, you could know a lot of stuff about a lot of things, but there could be one critical piece of information. And if you're in the dark about that critical piece of information, it's going to cause you to make some bad decisions, some unfortunate decisions. And when you finally... Uh, that is that particular piece of information is revealed to you or disclosed to you, it might cause you to do all kinds of different things, not the least of which is go, I'm not going to be on this reality show anymore, right? Like it's not an actual reality show. It's been canceled. I'm going back home. And so we have some characters in John chapter 4, particularly a Samaritan woman and the disciples who are in the dark about critical pieces of information. And once that information is disclosed to them, and what we'll see in the case of the Samaritan woman, 
like a light bulb turns on and she just changes. And for the disciples, it's a little bit more of a fade in, you know? (laughs) It's a little bit more of a fade in. So Jesus is teaching them all the while saying, look, you have to get your head around this critical piece of information because if and when you do, it will radically change the way you live your life. So let me introduce you to the four characters and then we're gonna unpack John chapter four together. Jesus is one of the characters in our story. Now, Jesus is not missing any pieces of information. He's not one of those people, all right? He's the all-knowing, okay? So that's that. we got Jesus. Then we've got a Samaritan woman. We're gonna talk a little bit more about this, but for those of you who have a difficult time remembering this stuff and who are Guess Who fans, you can remember it this way. Bum, bum, Samaritan woman, right? Again, some of you are like, he is messed up. And the rest of you are going, oh my gosh, first century Jerusalem greatest hits. This is amazing. I'm so glad I came to church today. All right. We've got a Samaritan woman who goes unnamed, by the way. We've got the disciples who are in this story. And, and the disciples really are missing a critical piece of information because Jesus engages in mission, in his mission on the planet, and they're not really understanding what's happening. So Jesus has this pattern in his life where he wants to teach his disciples something. And so what's he, what he does is he'll model it for them. He'll just live it out in front of them. And they're going, wow, that's interesting. I, that's, I, I'd never thought a rabbi would act like that. I certainly didn't think Jesus would act like that. That's new. That's different. And then what he'll do after the fact is he'll pull them aside and he'll say, okay, you see what I did there? Let me explain to you why that's happening. He does that in John 4, verse 38. After this conversation, he says to his disciples, I sent you to reap that that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So let me unpack this just a little bit. Jesus uses this metaphor of a harvest all the time to help us understand what it means to join him in his mission. So we've got a wheat field. And the wheat field represents people, the nations, the world. And the harvester is Jesus first and then us second. And he invites us in to gather that wheat or to harvest that wheat, to gather people into the kingdom of God. So even after he has this conversation with the Samaritan woman in which he is harvesting people, greeting them, welcoming this particular woman into the kingdom of God, the disciples are going, man, I don't get this. And he goes, look, 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 look. The fields are already ready for harvest. People are already ready to accept the invitation to join the kingdom of God. I'm just sending you out to reap what you didn't sow. You just go, you just go do it. And they're going, oh, you okay, you are modeling for us. You are sent into this woman's life and sent into our life and get it, sent into your life, into mine. And now Jesus invites us into that. And the fourth character that we have in this story is us. I mean, you're not going to read in there and go, and then there was you in the story. You're not going to read that. But now that it's recorded for us in the Bible and we can read it, we can learn from Jesus just as the disciples did. We can be changed by Jesus just as a Samaritan woman did. And so the critical piece of information that might be missing for some of us is really our bottom line truth today. And I'm going to show you in the scripture in John chapter 4 when and where this is happening. And here's the bottom line truth. If you're jotting down notes, jot this down. Is that Jesus was sent for you. And he sends you for others. This is not complicated. Jesus was sent. We've already seen that word sent in John 4, 38. He says, I sent you. Jesus was sent for you. And then once he redeems you, rescues you, now you join him in that mission in being sent for others. 
John chapter 20, uh, verse 31, I think, says it no more clear. 21. Uh, there's no more clear place that, 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 that the Bible says this. Jesus said to them, the disciples, again, peace be with you as the Father has what? Say that word. Sent me. Even so, I am. This is not complicated. Jesus was sent for you. He sends you for others. Jesus was sent for you. He sends you for others. And so here's what happens in John chapter 4. Jesus models for us what it means that he would be sent for you or sent for me because he is sent for this Samaritan woman to redeem and rescue her. And then what we see is the Samaritan woman join in that sending and that mission with Jesus. She goes, oh my gosh, I get it now. That critical piece of information has come to light. It's going to shift the way I interact with others. And she joins in that mission with him. And the disciples are still in the dark. They're going, all right, walk this through with me again. Explain this. Okay, so that's what we're about to see in John chapter 4. And when we see Jesus model this in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 20-ish, we're going to get four principles that might help guide us as we join Jesus in mission. You got it? Four principles, four things that Jesus models for us that if we adopt them, we go, okay, if, if Jesus has been sent, I want to watch how he acts when he is sent, how he interacts with others, what principles are guiding him. And then I'll adopt those principles myself because if Jesus was sent for me and I'm being sent for others, I want to be sent like he was sent. That makes sense? <laughs> sense. <laughs> that an accident. <laughs> Clever. Okay, John chapter 4. Actually, I just told a joke on accident that I laughed at. Does that make me clever or like can entertain myself for hours? It's great. Um, I don't even need you guys here. You can leave. If you, no, I'm kidding. Um, John chapter 4. Do you have your Bibles? I hope you do. John chapter 4. Open them up if you would. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can use your iPad, your iPhone, turn it off if you would, please. Uh, you can look on with a neighbor, and we're going to pick it up in verse 3 because John the Apostle makes a couple of contextual remarks in verses 1 and 2. We don't have time to get to those. And so we're going to pick it up here in verse 3, and we're going to see our very first principle for what it means. If we are the sent ones of God, how do we act and behave as God sends us out into the world for others to gather them into the kingdom of God? So we'll pick it up in verse 3 here. You'll see a pronoun there is he at the beginning of verse 3. But John is talking about Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. This word right here, had to, in the original language is simply day. D-E-I is the transliteration into English. And it means he was under compulsion. He was obligated to pass from Judea to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. He was obligated to go through Samaria. But in a purely geographical sense, that wasn't actually true. In fact, look up here on a map. Jesus is down here in Judea. That's the province that he's in. And he's in the city of Jerusalem. Remember John chapter 2 and John chapter 3? He's there for Passover in Jerusalem. And he talks with Nicodemus. And Jerusalem is in the province of Judea. So here's where he's traveling to up here in Galilee. So if if you were to take the shortest route from Judea to Galilee, you had to pass through Samaria. 
But Jesus was under no obligation to do so. In fact, he could have done what every other Orthodox Jew would have done. What every other Orthodox Jew would have done was avoided Samaria altogether. They would have left Judea, come up along the Dead Sea here, crossed over the Jordan River into Perea, all the way up north and back into Galilee, so they never had to set foot in Samaria. You know why? Because they hated Samaritans with a passion. In fact, in John chapter 4, uh, four, verse 9, we'll see it here in a minute, when John makes this side note and he says that Jews don't associate with Samaritans, quite literally, it's Jews don't use the same dishes as Samaritans did. I mean, they hated them with a passion. Now, we've reviewed this before, and I'm going to go fast through this, as if I don't go fast anyway, but stick with me here. Because in the 10th century BC, the nation of Israel was 12 united tribes. And David made some poor choices, and Solomon made some poor choices, and it caused the nation of Israel to divide two faithful tribes in the south that remained faithful to Yahweh's covenant and 10 unfaithful tribes in the north. Those two faithful tribes in the south were Judah and Benjamin. And those 10 tribes in the north, they just went off the rails. They didn't want any part of God. They disobeyed God. They didn't want to be around God. And so God sent the Assyrians in in 722 BC in order to conquer those 10 unfaithful tribes and essentially discipline them and call them back to himself. But rather than repent and coming back to God and saying, wow, we really messed that up. Could you fix it? Which God would have done. They welcomed the Assyrians in. I mean, I would have fought back, wouldn't you? And instead they were like, your gods are pretty cool. And like your religion stuff is pretty cool. Let's start something new. So they intermarried and they started something new. And instead of honoring the capital city in Jerusalem that God established, they established a new capital city in Samaria. Instead of honoring the temple that God had consecrated in Jerusalem, they built an entirely new temple in the 5th century B.C. called Mount Gezerim. It, it's, it's there in history. And so by the time the 5th and 4th centuries B.C. rolled around, those two faithful tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, looked at the ten unfaithful tribes in the north, and they're like, for six centuries, you guys have been running away from God. You intermarried with the Assyrians. At this point, you're just half-breeds. You established a new temple. You've, you've run the kingdom of God into the ground. You have this whole new capital. Like, we're not even going to call you Jews anymore. You guys are a total mess. So they began to call them Samaritans after their capital. It would not be an overstatement to say that Jews considered Samaritans half-breed traitors who ran God's kingdom and promises into the ground. So did Jesus have to go through Samaria? No, sir, and no, ma'am. He was under no compulsion to do so. In fact, if he would have followed the route that a typical Jew would take, he would have avoided altogether. But Jesus teaches us something about mission in his very choice of route. And what does he teach us? He teaches us that he engaged and did not avoid. He engaged and did not avoid. He engaged with those who were far from God. He did not avoid. On purpose, went after them. John will eventually tell us that he's in the city of Sychar. We don't know where that is because it's an ancient city. We don't know exactly where it is, but we know very, very close to where it is. And it's right here. Go back one slide. Go back to that map. It's right here, smack dab in the middle of Samaria. 
I mean, Jesus is in the thick of it. He goes right into the heart of no man's land, into rebellion country. Why? Because he engaged and did not avoid those who were far from God. Let me ask you something. Do you engage with those who are far from God or do you avoid them? Because here's the deal for me. When I interact with someone who's far from God, and maybe I share a little bit about Jesus with them, and I share a little bit about church, and I share a little bit about the kingdom of God and the mission of God, every now and then I'll get somebody who goes, wow, that sounds really interesting. I'd really love to go to church with you and check that out. And a lot of times I get somebody who's like, yeah, no thanks. And if they live kind of a different life than I do, or maybe they have a different moral compass than I do, they have a different religious bent than I do, or spiritual background than I do, I'm not rude to them because that would be just ungodly. You know what I do is I avoid them altogether. I'm just, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. Hey, and here's the thing. I know you do too. You circle around their cubicle at work. You, you don't make that call or respond to that text right away. See, Jesus models for us a different way. He says, this is how you live on mission. You engage deliberately purposefully and do not avoid those who are far from God, period. Let's keep reading. Verse five. Came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was, was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The original language here is that it's kind of a spring of water. So this is flowing water where Jacob had built some kind of a well to extract that water and to water his crops and give water to his family and to his tribe and all that stuff. So Jesus sits down there, and the text tells us a couple of things. One is that it was about the sixth hour. We've talked about this before, but remember the Jewish day starts at sunrise, which which is about 6 a.m., uh, uh, more often than not, at least in this part of the world. And so the sixth hour would have been high noon, when the sun was hottest, when the day was longest. And it tells us that Jesus was so thirsty that he even asked a Samaritan woman, dun, 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 Samaritan woman, to draw water for him. That's how thirsty he was. And the text also tells us that he was wearied from his journey. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes I grow weary in doing good. I do. Sometimes I grow weary in inviting people to participate in the kingdom of God. Sometimes I grow weary of sharing the gospel. But Paul would tell us in Galatians, do not grow weary in doing good. Why? Because you know that in due time you will, come on now, reap a harvest of righteousness. Do you see the metaphor already? See, Jesus didn't allow his weariness to get in the way. Jesus didn't allow his fatigue to get in the way. Jesus exhausted his resources. He exhausted his physical resources. He exhausted his emotional resources. He gave everything he had. Jesus even compromised what reputation he might have been building for himself because the contextualization statements that John makes at the beginning of chapter four is that Jesus was beginning to grow in popularity. You think it would have torpedoed his popularity for friends to learn that he was interacting with a Samaritan woman? Yikes. Jesus is a mess. But Jesus exhausts his resources and gives everything he has for the sake of mission. Do you? Do you? Like on a one to ten, what are you giving it right now? Like an eight? Three? Be honest with yourself. It's between you and God. I got nothing against you here. Here's one way for me, I'll just tell you, here's one way for me that this growing weary and growing tired, especially when it comes to joining God in mission, manifests itself is in my prayer life. 
Have you ever, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm really gonna ask this question, okay? I'm gonna ask for a show of hands. I don't always do this, but I'm gonna ask for a show of hands. Has anybody ever made a personal private commitment or even in a corporate setting like this, a worship service, to pray for a friend, specifically a friend who doesn't know Jesus? Has anybody made a commitment like that ever in their life? One, two, three, raise your hand. Yeah, me too, me too. You know how long it took me to give up on that prayer? Well, how long did it take me to walk out, you know? Now, for some, I've stuck with it. For some, I've stuck with it. But sometimes I just grow weary. I grow tired. And I forget and I neglect. See, here's what Jesus models for us today is even in the midst of your weariness, God can still use you when you submit it to him. Even in the midst of your fatigue, Jesus shows us that being on mission means being empowered by the Spirit, and going and picking up that commitment once again and picking up that card once again and beginning to pray for that friend once again and saying, oh, I know, I'm weary. It's the heat of the day. I'm thirsty. I'm tired. But I'm still going to join Jesus in his mission to gather people into the kingdom of God. Let's keep reading verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. So note, it's just him and the Samaritan woman at the well now. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's so funny to me. Not funny, but it's interesting. It's curious to me that John would make it very, very clear how different Jesus and this woman are. Do you see it? Like, he mentions multiple times that she's a woman. He mentions multiple times that she's Samaritan, that, that he's a Jew. See, there may not be two people on the planet ever that were more different than Jesus and this Samaritan woman. He was male, she was female. He had a reputation that was growing. She had no reputation at all, and if she did, it was a bad one. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. Like, he, he was religious, she was irreligious, I mean, one thing after another, come from different nationalities, different ethnic backgrounds, likely different languages in a lot of ways, disagreed as to where worship happened. I mean, these guys were as different as night and day, but Jesus does not let that stop him. No matter what gap existed between him and this woman, for the sake of mission, Jesus bridged all possible gaps. Every single one whether it was a gender gap, whether it was a language gap, whether it was an uh, ethnic gap, what, what, whatever it was, Jesus put all things aside and got aggressive in pursuing this woman. Now, I would tell you two things. Number one, the gap of sin that existed between you and Jesus was an unbridgeable gap, and he bridged that gap to start with. Praise God. Amen. Like, we were far from him, and not just far from him, alone, lost, dark, and dead in our sin. And he bridged that gap, but it's not just that gap. What Jesus teaches us as he interacts in mission is that there is no gap in your world between you and another that the Spirit of God cannot bridge. You might think that you're far from a friend. You might think that you're far from a family member because of their lifestyle, because of their moral compass because of their culture, because of whatever. You might think that gap is there, but what Jesus tells us is maybe, maybe it's there, 
but God can bridge that gap. And so Jesus set all things aside in order to engage with the Samaritan woman and bridge that gap. So here's my question for you. As Jesus calls you to join him in mission and be sent by him, what gaps do you need to bridge right now? Do you feel there's an economic gap between you and someone in your neighborhood or your family? Is there a coworker that doesn't know Jesus and you'd like to invite that person, him or her, to get to know Jesus in a personal way and the gap between you is a language gap or a cultural gap? Maybe there's somebody God's calling you to reach out to, especially those in our congregation who are um, youth challenged. I'm trying to figure out a nice way to say that. Old. Um, uh, that that you feel like there's a gap between you and someone else that's an age gap. that won't. They, they, I just can't bridge that gap. They, they have the Google and the thing, and I don't know. They got PlayStations. I don't know what the kids are doing these days, okay? But God can bridge that gap between you for the sake of the gospel now, for the sake of the gospel between you and that other person. And it's what Jesus models for us. You think your age gap or ethnic gap or economic gap is too big? These gaps are huge, and Jesus bridged them all. Let's keep, it, let's keep reading. Jesus answered her, verse 10. Jesus answered her because, uh, sorry, he, he requests uh, water from her. And Jesus answered her, if you knew, so he's about to reveal what the critical piece of information is, right? The critical piece of information that you're missing is this. If you knew who it was, or if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water. Verse 16, the conversation is about to take a turn. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, now here's where she's got to face herself. You are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus brings to light her need, reveals to her, look, I know who you are. I know your life situation. I know your history, your past, and your present, your future. I know all about you. And here's where, you at. Here's where you're at. You have a need for me. I love the Samaritan woman's response. You know, sometimes I show you stuff in Scripture that I think is funny, and no one else thinks it's funny, but I think it's really funny. Okay, so Jesus said, I'm going to show you one right now. Jesus says this to this woman, you've had five husbands, the one you're with now is not your husband. Look at her response. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Oh, thank you, Sherlock. That's uh, really great information. He just told you all about yourself. I'm like, are you a prophet? Um, So now she begins to scramble again. She really does because she starts to bring up this idea of worship. She's like, well, you say it's Jerusalem. We say it's Mount Gezerim. And Jesus brings the the conversation right back. He's like, look, this is not what we're talking about. Don't wax philosophical. Don't wax spiritual. Bring the conversation right back to my identity, this critical piece of information that you're missing. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. 
So as far as we know, this is where the conversation ends between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. What we know is that her life radically changed. We'll get there in a minute, but before we get there, I want to show you a fourth principle for being on mission with Jesus that he models for us here. This word Messiah is the Hebrew word for Christ. John is uh, gracious here, and he translates it into the, the Greek form, just so either Greek or Hebrew readers both get the gist here. And Messiah means anointed one, but it can also mean sent one. So when this Samaritan woman brings up this idea of the sent one from God, Jesus' immediate response is, that's me, I'm the sent one. See, Jesus understood his mission. There was no confusion. There was no lack of clarity. He understood exactly what he was there for. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I am on mission to gather God's people to him and to gather my people to me. And so when Jesus invites us to participate in his life with him, he is inviting us into this crystal clear mission too. But some of us, Some of us, this has grown a little vague. It's grown a little nebulous. It's grown a little unclear because we think the mission is to memorize more Bible verses or we think the the mission is long-term, consistent church attendance. We think the mission is all sorts of different things. And Jesus, into the picture, he says, no, the mission is I was sent for you. Now you and I go get others together and gather people into the kingdom of God. I mean, don't stop attending church. That's a good thing. Don't stop memorizing the Bible. That's a good thing. Don't stop living morally for crying out loud. Those are good things, but that's not the mission. The mission is to be sent by God to gather people to himself. Now, it's awesome because the disciples have no clue what's going on. They're unclear. Watch. The disciples say, sorry, next for, uh, yeah, there we go. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? So no one asked the woman anything because they're too afraid to talk to a Samaritan woman. Even Jesus is doing it. They're like, I can't do this. I just can't get over it. Or why are you talking with her? They don't even ask Jesus why you're talking with her, right? They're confused. But look who's not confused. The one to whom the critical piece of information was revealed. Look what happens. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town to the people and said, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Immediately upon the identity of Christ being revealed to her, immediately when she saw Jesus for who he was, God in the flesh, Messiah Christ, Son of God, she left, and not just left, but she left her water jar there. She left in haste. She said, I, gotta, I just got to go tell people. I just got to go tell people about this. And Jesus is like, hey, thanks for chatting. Uh, like she's just running off. I gotta, you got to go hear about this guy. We had a gal uh, come to church here, um, I don't know, a couple years ago now, probably, back when we were doing two services. That doesn't seem like years ago now, doesn't it? Like a long time ago. We were doing two services. She came to the 915 service. Uh, a lot like the Samaritan woman in terms of background, in terms of religious and spiritual convictions, in terms of her lifestyle and morals and those kinds of things. And she came to church for the very first time and she had really no concept of God. She grew up in a country where God and that concept of God was kind of squished. So she had no concept of God and certainly no concept of Jesus. And she sat here as we worshiped together and she listened to a sermon for about 40 minutes and she heard that God loved her and had a plan for her and sent his son for her. And that day, 
hour and 15 minutes, probably a little longer than this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. She said, I've just gotta have this Jesus guy. And she repented and believed and trusted Christ for salvation. You know what the first thing she did was? She went home and got her husband and two kids and said, you have got to come back and hear about this. And they came back to the 11 o'clock service. (laughs) And six months later, he repented and believed too. And they're here in our service every single week. You know, it's funny. We all think we've got to have all the answers, don't we? We've got to have all the answers about God and about Genesis 1 and about Jesus and about this and about the nature of the Scripture and authority of the Bible and is there evil in the world and why is there evil in the world. We've got to have all those questions. Hey, that's great. Ask those questions. Answer those questions. I think that's awesome. But the Samaritan woman did not have any of those answers. You understand that, right? None of those answers. She just went and told people. So Jesus gathers his disciples aside and he's like, look, you you gotta be like her. Don't say the harvest is six months from now, the harvest is 12 months from now, down the road. That's when God is gonna use me to gather people into his kingdom. Jesus looks at his disciples in verse 38 and says to them, I sent you. I've been sent. Now I'm sending you. This is our bottom line truth today. I've been sent for you. Now I'm sending you to reap that which, for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And then here's the great part about it. The disciples, again, that light finally gets turned on right about Acts chapter two and 5,000 people are gathered to the kingdom of God. It was a, it was a long dimmer switch for them. <laughs> But when finally that critical piece of information came to light, it radically changed who they were. And, and check this out, and, and how they lived and how they responded. And check this out, we're sitting here today because of them. But watch, watch what happens with the Samaritan woman, I love this. She goes back, she begins to tell people, you have got to see this guy who told me everything I ever did, which is not true, by the way. He didn't tell her everything she ever did, he just told her some stuff, and she's like, this thing is amazing. You've gotta come see this Jesus guy. It's blowing my mind. And watch this. Many Samaritans from that town, say this word with me now, believed. There it is. Once again, 98 times in the book of John. Many Samaritans, many Many Samaritans put their active trust in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. This Samaritan woman with no reputation, no name, no moral compass or background, no real good answers to any questions, just told some people about Jesus. And many actively put their trust in him. Now that's pretty cool. One last question and we'll be done. Jesus was sent in the world for you. Now he sends you for others. So for whom has Jesus sent you? Who is it in your life, a coworker, a friend, a family member, that needs you to join Jesus in his mission and go after them? And I'm not talking about in an aggressive, smack them with a big Bible kind of way. What I'm talking about is in the way that we saw Jesus interact with this woman with grace, with tenderness, with kindness, by bridging all possible gaps, by exhausting all of his resources for in, in, as he engaged and did not avoid. That's the kind of mission that I want to be involved with. And Jesus is calling you. So who is that person he's calling you to reach out to this week? And it's a great week to do that because everybody wants to come to church on Easter the, sh- the service is typically shorter, and they hand out candy. Like, what, like, what's wrong with that? Everybody wants to come to church on Easter. Make it easy on yourself. 
Don't invite them on like May 2-4 weekend. Who wants to come to church May 2-4? Sorry. Everybody should, by the way. Everyone. It's a great opportunity this week to join Jesus in his mission and go after someone and say, I just want you to come and see this man, Jesus, the God-man who changed my life. Just come meet him on Resurrection Sunday with me. So for whom has Jesus sent you? Pray with me and we'll close as we sing. God, we want to be a sent people. A people who understand, Jesus, that you entered the world on mission to seek and save the lost. And so when you sought us out and saved us, now you invite us into that ministry of reconciliation sharing the gospel, your story with others, living the gospel and being a redeeming and reconciling force in our world. God, teach us to respond like the Samaritan woman responded and joining you in your mission immediately, telling others about you. And Jesus, we trust that the spirit of God will work in and through us and that many who hear our testimony will believe in you. God, even in this moment, would you put that name, that face on our hearts, each individual in the room, just one person that they can send a text even now or shoot a phone call or an email, invite them to join us this weekend for Resurrection Sunday so that they might meet you and believe you and place their active trust in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. stand together as we sing.